Good evening, and welcome to the January 2024 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, this is an election year, and perhaps one of the most important so far this decade. This month and next, we're going to be covering some of the important issues you need to know about when thinking about who should lead our country. Tonight, we begin with HIV and AIDS. My guest is Gerard Radovozian. He's devoted his life to working on the political side of the HIV-AIDS pandemic and will share his views on the state of the virus today, as well as the political threats to progress on ending it. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, January 28, 2024. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of January 28th, 2024. Well, the first two weeks of 2024 have seen approximately 285 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced in state legislatures across the country. That's more than half the massive number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills proposed just last year. A legislative tracker from the American Civil Liberties Union reports that among the other restrictions, 71 of these bills target health care. 21 seek to ban drag shows, 7 would create barriers for trans folks to access accurate identification, and 46 attempt to weaken civil rights laws, while 130 others propose censoring school curriculums. Oklahoma has currently proposed the most anti-LGBTQ bills with 36 on the books, followed by Missouri with 28 and South Carolina with 26. Among the most toxic bills includes one by Republican legislators proposed in Florida. It's House Bill 1135, which targets, quote, groomers. It's a thinly veiled attempt to criminalize the existence of LGBTQ plus people and content. The one-page bill makes the act of, quote, lewd or lascivious grooming, and quote, a second-degree felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. While LGBTQ plus content is not explicitly mentioned in the bill, Republicans have popularized using the word groomer as an anti-LGBTQ plus slur, with many claiming that any exposure to LGBTQ plus identities is a sexualization and grooming of children. Another bill proposed in Indiana would legally erase transgender people and reaffirm the state's ban on same-sex marriage. House Bill 1291 would remove the word gender from state laws and replace it with the expression of, quote, biological sex, including in anti-discrimination laws. The bill also redefines the term male and female to be based on whether someone can produce sperm or ova and redefines other gender terms based on body parts. And in South Carolina, a bill to ban gender-affirming health care for transgender minors and to apply new restrictions on it for young adults has passed the South Carolina House of Representatives. The bill would require schools to out students they suspect are transgender or gender non-binary. The bill would also ban all forms of gender-affirming care, including puberty blockers and hormone therapy, for transgender youth under the age of 18. Doctors who provide such care, which is supported by major medical associations in the U.S., could risk losing their licenses. House Bill 4624 is its name and contains an exemption for cisgender minors to receive gender-affirming care and only bans transgender youth from receiving the same care. It also contains an exemption for such procedures to be performed on intersex minors, which are often performed on them without their consent. The state's Medicaid program will also be banned from covering gender-affirming care for transgender people under the age of 26. The state's Medicaid program already excludes coverage for gender-affirming care for transgender people of all ages in the state. 
The bill would also require school nurses, counselors, teachers, and administration to disclose, quote, information related to a minor's perception that his or her gender is inconsistent with his or her sex to their parents. The bill contains no exceptions for suspected trans and non-binary minors who don't believe that their parents will support them or would kick them out of the house or subject them to abuse. On a bit of a brighter note, The Advocate magazine reported that U.S. Senator LaFonza Butler, she's the first black lesbian to serve in the U.S. chamber, delivered her maiden address to her colleagues earlier this month, focusing on the work being done by young Americans and promising to support them. She said, quote, from the Women's March to the Black Lives Matter marches around the globe, the most racially and ethnically diverse generation of our time has shown up time and time again, demanding that we do better. And she went on to say, quote, whether it's the movement for gun reform, environmental protection, racial justice, or your local barista's fight to join a union, young people have demonstrated their willingness to be a force, the energy, and the face of change. And while it's true across the nation, it's especially true in my home state of California, the state home to the largest number of Gen Zers in our country, end quote. The senator mentioned Kamara Brown, who in 2020, at the age of 17, became the first black female to be a student board member for the Los Angeles Unified School District. The senator said it's thanks to her leadership that students in L.A. have access to greater resources that they need to thrive, end quote. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. My guest tonight is Gerard Radovosian. He's an American policy advisor specializing in global health and human rights, who, among many other prestigious assignments, served as acting chief of staff to the United States Global AIDS Coordinator from 2022 to 2023. He also served as the legislative director to U.S. Representative Barbara Lee. Gerard, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be with you. I'm super excited to talk about you, and we have a lot to cover in this next hour. Um... But before we get talking about the current state of the AIDS crisis and your experience with that, tell us about yourself and your background and how you got into that work. Sure. Um, you know, I'm born, I'm a California guy, born and raised in, in Los Angeles. I spent um, some time in, in the Bay Area as well. I think I'm up to five years uh, almost uh, before heading out east to uh, grad school uh, where I uh, got my public health degree from Boston University uh, and uh, got really involved in, in, in HIV policy uh, through that work and, and was bit by the D.C. bug. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted what it was to, to work on, on Capitol Hill and um, eventually landed a, a great position with a with a with a liberal icon of ours, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, and uh, worked on the Hill. Uh, from there, I worked for um uh you know a, 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 um, a private sector company gilead sciences and then and then eventually at the state department as well so i i've um spent the last uh, 10 12 years in dc uh and uh have developed a big community there of friends uh i met my uh, now husband on the east coast and uh, that's uh, but still very much tied my roots are very much uh, california and los angeles i'm, I'm armenian american uh, my parents immigrated to Los Angeles um, separately uh, in the in the mid '70s. They met here in LA, mm -hmm. and uh, my Armenian heritage is something that um, is something that I feel and see, and 
uh, and uh, you know live uh, every single every day. It's it's really important to me, uh, and that's a little bit who I am. I've I've been involved in public health and HIV work my whole life. That's always been the theme that's connected all my various. Um, uh, employment opportunities, uh, volunteer work, social justice, uh, crusading, uh, and mm -hmm. that's always been a, a, a defining uh, characteristic of, of of my work. Interesting. What what about it attracted you? You, you know, it was um, it was. I was trying to re recall this uh, with a friend the other day. I think it was the it was a class I took in in college. I was at UCLA, and it was. A, it was one of those like, it was I think called HIV and politics, and and I'm like, wow, those are two of my favorite things. I'm like, let me let me, and that instructor uh, was he's no longer with us, but he's somebody who had come out of the HIV movement, uh, er, involved in the early '80s, and so this would have been 2002, my final year at UCLA, and so you know he was conveying his 20 years of experience mm -hmm. on. Uh, on, on how HIV is so much more than just a virus and so much more than just a health issue. And uh, that course opened my eyes to how um, a medical, uh, we'll call it a medical issue for the sake of conversation, how a medical, uh, how a virus, let's say, is connected to social, political, cultural, religious, economic um, uh, issues and how those things relate and how they sometimes reinforce each other in a positive way and most often in a negative way and and it it touched all aspects of society and and i was was fascinated by it so i immediately had to learn more about um uh, of you know the of why why what was religion's impact on hiv what it, what's up with the social issues what's the, you know and, and so you get exposed to stigma and you get exposed to the political issues and i learned about uh, you know, the PEPFAR program globally and uh, was fascinated by that because around that same time I had uh, just gone to South Africa, which was the first time out of the country for me and um, uh, landed in South Africa. That was 2002, right as the PEPFAR program was getting built up. Uh, and, and, it, and it just was one of those issues that had taken up the consciousness of, 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 of the public health community. And I was fascinated by the fact that it was so much more than just the public health and than, 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 than a virus. Yeah, it, it is really fascinating. And you're right, it touches on so many different aspects of our society uh, and our system. I'm thinking back to when I first heard about HIV, I was just graduating high school in 1981. And in fact, the CDC bulletin that came out, the famous one on June 5th, was literally two weeks before I walked across the stage. And wow. here I am, you know, at, at 18, thinking about being out in the world as a very closeted gay man at the time, but really ready to go out and, and experience what that was all about. And then, you know, heard about this horrific disease that was starting to kill people. You're much younger than me, but when, when did you first hear about HIV? When did it first become part of your conscious? Yeah, you know, this is kind of, uh, it's a little personal in the sense that I'm exactly the, the age of HIV. You know, I'm 43. And um, and so, you know, as that CDC um, uh, report was coming out, that's that's when I was born. I was, mm -hmm. was born in 1980. Um, I, I, I like to say that my birthday twin is Ryan White, uh, which is um, 
maybe another sign. Um, but uh, I've been as old as the virus has been discovered, you know. And so I learned about it uh, basically about halfway through uh, in my in my early twenties. I didn't have a robust sex ed um, uh, class in in my, in my high school. Um, I went to a private Armenian high school in LA. You don't get a lot of sex ed exposure there. Um, I don't think we got any, frankly. Um, so it was not until really uh, college where I was um, volunteering in, in, in hospitals. Uh, I was volunteering for community projects. I had just heard about an, an HIV orphanage in Kenya that I did some, that I held bake sales to, to raise money for, mm. uh, you know, and HIV, HIV, it was just like, it was just this thing, you know? And so this would have been, uh, this would have been in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, as I was graduating college, took this infectious disease course, uh, which exposed me to, uh, to learning more about um, HIV and, and, and everything else. And so by then, so my generation, we didn't grow up um, having having friends, partners, husbands, lovers who died because there were no access to to medication or they couldn't get on a clinical trial. But we were born into uh, uh, you know a generation of of people who had very vivid and direct connections, you know. And so uh, because of my HIV work, I was uh, which I started soon after I got um, interested in it uh, and has been with me for my my entire life, um, I got connected to people who had that very strong, vivid connection, direct connection. And so by just by osmosis almost and, and the kinds of friends and family that I have developed over the years through my HIV work, um, you, you just became more more personally uh, connected. And I, now I've had friends who have died of HIV or who have died of uh, they've lived a long life, but have now died um, uh, of uh, of other causes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but that's an important point because I feel like I was kind of right at maybe the last generation to be able to have that kind of connectivity. Because the younger, uh, if you look at 20-year-olds now or 30-year-olds, or you know, they're first of all, no one's like flocking into the HIV movement, which is which is kind of a, um, a concern because HIV is far from over. But there's so many other things to, to worry about, other challenges to, to try to fight, social justice issues to, to conquer. Uh, and even those that um, ha are entering the field or who are physicians who are focused on HIV, on HIV cohorts, um, that connectivity to to the time that you were born, Greg, and that you 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 know you have memories of is becoming longer and longer, and so so people's uh, uh, you know uh, it, it impacts the way people engage with the issue, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that you know, we need to think about because this is not going to go away in the next five years. We still have another couple decades at least, and even when a cure or a, or, or a vaccine becomes available, we know from our COVID experience, it's not going to go away. Uh, we're not going to get everyone vaccinated in, in, in one week, you know? So uh, that's something we as an HIV movement have to think about is like, who, how are we recruiting our, our next army of, of, of fighters uh, to get this job done? Yeah, that's a great point. A really great point. Uh, and I'm thinking back to the messaging I got in school which, like you, was really nothing. I mean, I remember sex ed, uh, but there was no conversation about same-sex relationships, of course. There was no mm -hmm. conversation about um, HIV at all. 
Um, it just wasn't something that, that I think our teachers thought we had to worry about. At least the district didn't think that. I'm sure the teachers were aware of it. Um, yeah. There was nothing there. And so I think that ignorance, that lack of access to information, certainly didn't help in prevention, for sure. Um, I learned about it really from, you know, seeing some posters on the outside of the windows of a pharmacy in the Castro and, you know, in, in the lobby of the very first bathhouse I ever went to. That's where my consciousness, and that's not certainly a great place to learn about prevention. But of course, at the time, we didn't know a lot either. All right, we know so much more now about it. So there is a lot of information that is available to share that should be shared. And I still don't think schools are doing a great job doing that. I agree. I, I agree. And, I, and I, if you look at who gets infected now in the, in the United States, and we can talk about the global epidemic too, every single one of those infections can be prevented. And mm -hmm. uh, even though the number has decreased significantly, um, but whoever still is getting impacted is because, like you said, they're either not educated they're in a community that still has stigma. They're living in, in a setting that is unhoused. Uh, they're using drugs. You know, it, you can explain every single one of them. And, and all of those cases are, are, are preventable. So, but I do love that you saw a poster at a bathhouse. That, that's public health in action. So it is. at least let's, let's recognize that for what it is. Yeah. Well, and of course, it wasn't put out by any official government agency. It was put out by people in the community, as were those posters that were hanging on the window of the pharmacy in the Castro. It was, yeah. it was, hey, if you've got this or if you've seen this, call this number. Uh, warning, mm -hmm. be careful. Look for this. Watch for that. Um, yeah. And the messaging was put out by community members. No one in government was pretty effective, at least for me. It scared the hell yeah. out of me. Um, and it probably kept me alive. Well, we know the community is always more effective than government in terms of messaging. But, yeah. you know, for younger uh, listeners, it's, your the parallel here is COVID, you know, like exactly. you, when remember, it's hard to remember. Uh, it's hard to forget because it was only a couple of years ago, but it, it it was only last year where you, you know, you we have signs on the floor that said stand here six feet apart from the other person, you know, or you still walk into the bathroom sometimes and, and there there's leftover signs from 2021 that says wash your hands. COVID is real. You know, that's right. Years from now, people will be on a podcast or maybe a different kind of technology that we can't even envision talking about these relics. But but that's that, that that's how real it is. Yep. Yep. Well, and of course, things with COVID turned around much faster than they did with HIV. Uh, mm -hmm. Give us a sense, just for people who don't know the history of it. When did things, in your mind, really turn around for the pandemic related to HIV? I mean, people were dying for I don't know what the first really. 15 years what what when did it change yeah well you know yeah because the and the hiv movement so to speak in terms of those early activists who were involved um even as that cdc publication was 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 coming out they've been they were active you know around since the 80s and and i think you know there are a couple of different i think uh, milestones the first one has to be in my mind when uh, when AZT was was discovered. So in the mid eighties, you know? and and I think that uh, and there was a lot of activism around um, uh, it, 
changing the way FDA works. Think about that. You know, what do we, uh, back then? And and some of our some of them are still my friends and they're alive. Uh, it, you know, people what did, they didn't know anything about. Um, you know, I'm thinking I'm thinking about like Peter Staley. You know, in 1981, he didn't know anything about FDA, mm-hmm. but he he sure became an expert very quickly and went toe to toe with with people that you hear about now, Anthony Fauci, for example, and they convinced the FDA to, um, you know, to change their their inclusion criteria and the way they they, they did um, uh, trials to be able to 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 get more people, uh, you know, uh, access to care, access to care quicker. Now, there was a lot of toxicity in those medications uh, in their early days, but really it was not until the early 90s where we saw uh, the NRTI drugs getting FDA approval that really made treatment possible, and I think that was a turning point. I think that's when people um, then really learned uh, more about the virus, but then more about the opportunities to to to, to have treatment. And uh, and of course, cost was a massive barrier back then, um, as it continues to be in many settings around the world. But I think I'd say. I'd say mid to late '80s in the in the formulation of ARVs, and and then I think fast forward a little bit, probably when prep when when mm. when was approved uh, is in our in in my lifetime I, I'd say is is kind of that moment where we saw this massive new opportunity to to make a real dent in the in, in the in the pandemic as well I, i'd say those are two big big opportunities and plenty others along the way but but i think those two are big ones yeah. i'm going to come back and talk about prep in a second but okay. as as i don't even know if i want to describe our progress with hiv in the u.s as being something that was good or well but it's certainly been better than what we've seen happen in other countries. I mean, it, it's still a major, major health threat in other countries. Yeah. You, you know, it's so interesting, Greg. Yes and no. You know, I had the privilege of working for the Global HIV program for the last two years, the mm-hmm. PEPFAR program, and uh, really immersed myself in the data. And there are a number of countries globally and in particular in sub-saharan africa like i'm thinking of botswana i'm thinking of uh of south africa rwanda while their epidemics are are huge in terms of the number of people living with hiv much larger than here in the u.s their progress is a lot better than ours uh we, hmm. if you look at the aids global benchmarks of 95 95 95 there are over 10 countries in sub-Saharan Africa that have already met those targets. We have far from, from meeting those targets in the U.S. Now, there, it's not apples to apples because we have advancements in other areas in the HIV response in the U.S. And, and the last mile, so to speak, is different here than it is in in, in Kigali. Yeah, but, uh, but I'd say globally, I'd say there's more progress outside the U.S. than, than there is in the U.S. in some ways. Interesting. I would not. Have, nice. I would not have predicted that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's go back. Let's go to prep then. Uh, that was definitely. I agree with you. One of the one of the most significant advances in in our recent time for sure. And there's also been a lot of stigma associated with it. We've covered prep pretty much since it was approved back in 2012. We've had people on to talk about that it's a good thing or a bad thing. We've mm-hmm. had men that have used it and and say it's great, and others that are very critical of it and feel that it creates a, uh, 
an image, if you will, maybe of, of promiscuity, all of sort of those old ideas. What's your thought about it and its impact on prevention? Yeah, PrEP was I, I, a game changer. You know, insert any dramatic set of words you can, I think. Um, I think uh, PrEP really changed HIV messaging, changed the way um, uh, changed the way we think about stigma, you know, changed it gave people agency to be able to um, uh, have more control over their lives. Uh, people who uh, it, it gave new opportunities for uh, people who inject drugs or for sex workers to be able to to um, to 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 be HIV negative, even though they were engaged in very high risk, um, you know, activities as it relates to HIV transmission. So PrEP opened up the uh, opportunities and, and our imagination in terms of what the HIV response could look like. Um, 2012, you said, yeah, I'm just trying to remember where we were back then. So there, I remember this was the Vienna International AIDS Conference, if I'm remembering correctly, where uh, the that first landmark trial presented results. And and I remember, just like you said, there were there were mixed opinions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think some people were saying, "Oh, you know, we can't give prep to everyone. We have to be careful. This is an AR. This is still a, an HIV treatment drug." At the end of the day, and there was, and on the other side of that, there were people like uh, who were who were saying what I'm just saying now that this is this is a game changer. Who had that opportunity to kind of see what the next ten years could 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 look like, and and I think. Uh, you know, there's there's good and bad in that. I think um, others who, because those who had a more cautious, those who were more cautiously optimistic, I think helped raise important issues about how to uh, roll out prep in certain communities to ensure that they were community led, that the communities themselves inputted into what those issues can be in terms of implementation challenges. So people were making good points back then. Uh, I think there are also harmful people who who were distorting the science and 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 were so treatment oriented or had been treatment focused for 20 years in their life. And that's because of, you know, you could say financial reasons or their job or they were in an HIV treatment organization that they didn't couldn't open their eyes and, and see past past what they were doing. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of people like Michael Weinstein, who, who at AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who was who was putting out um, uh uh, advertisements in Los Angeles and across the country about prep and and uh, and and warning people about about prep and so uh, I think that caused some damage. I think that caused a lot of miscommunication and 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 HIV providers now and community providers have had to deal with a lot of just education and and relearning and helping people understand what the benefits are for prep and and of course we've come a long way in terms of guidelines. Um, I think there's also stigma that uh, was created because of the way PrEP was rolled out. You know, so we started, uh, and in particular, by the way, I, I have a lot of experience in South Africa. In South Africa, the PrEP guidelines were only for men who have sex with men, for gay men, uh, or, or for sex workers. And so now that guidelines um, allow for, for PrEP to be available, available to anyone, and science shows that it can be beneficial for anyone, we've had to 
to kind of re-educate providers uh, uh, to to say like no 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 it's it's not just for gay men anymore it's 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 anyone it's it's an it's a tool for 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 young women it's a tool for anyone who 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 wants to who's in a high risk situation and wants to to stay HIV negative and so people that's led to a lot of mis, mis, misinformation and miscommunication so we've had to clean up some of that not too dissimilar from COVID by the way yeah but overall prep has has been a game changer but you know what Greg it's it's what you so 2012 we're now 12 years into it and prep uptake is still pretty dismal in the United States even though the numbers have gone up in the last couple of years, thanks to the focus that the White House HIV um, uh, uh, ending the HIV epidemic act has uh, has been able to ending the HIV uh, program that's been able to bring focus, but there's still a lot of stigma with PrEP. There's still a lot of financial challenges, healthcare and health insurance uh, challenges that uh, are related to the uptake of PrEP, and and I'm really concerned that um, we have to. Um, I'm really concerned that these similar issues are going to be uh, with us when there is a HIV vaccine or cure. Yeah. And I hope we're learning from those PrEP uptake challenges as well. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more we could talk about with the, the medical pieces of the virus. I mean, there's so much. We could spend hours talking about that. But you mentioned at the beginning of the show that this has got so many different angles to it, including a political one. And early on... Mm-hmm. It really started, it really got off to a bad start because of the political issues with our president, Reagan, at the time. Talk about his role in delaying the response. Yeah. Um, when it, when did Reagan mention AIDS? Was it, um, it was not until his fi- basically final year, right? Or, yeah. or 85, 86? Yeah, it was four years into the pandemic, 1985. Yeah, so think of how many lives we lost in that time. And and it was Elizabeth Taylor and an HIV conference that 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 uh, Amfar, my former uh, employer, had organized at that time that really pushed Reagan to mention it. I think uh, you know that it that reflecting now, and of course I was only five years old. I I can't even remember what I was doing then, let alone thinking about this, but reflecting on it now, it's, it, 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 it is a direct parallel to Donald Trump sitting in the, uh, you know, in the press off press office on the podium with, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci on one side, Dr. Deb- Debbie Burks on, on the other side and, and, and lying about COVID and COVID's, uh, you know the real threat that COVID uh, brought to communities, and mm-hmm. and lying how to treat COVID. He, he was talking about drinking bleach. So I, I I see those two things as being very similar. You know, Reagan ignoring HIV and and Trump uh, ignoring COVID's reality. I think are you know it's a it's a modern uh, parallel to to Reagan. And I think we haven't learned our lessons. Why, Greg? Why aren't we learning our lessons? uh from from these uh from our experiences in the past people forget so quickly and and uh and we have to remind ourselves of of those reagan moments because we know the next pandemic is around the corner yeah and and i hope that we learn from our covid vaccine rollout mistakes when there's an hiv vaccine available one day or when there's a cure available one day one of the presidents that got i think a really bad rap 
on a number of gay issues, LGBT issues, was George Bush Jr. But I've come to learn he's actually, outside of his presidency, done a lot, um, especially internationally around HIV. Tell us about that. You're right. You're right. Um, you know, President um, George W. Bush was the first president who actually mentioned HIV in his State of the Union address. And he this was this was 2003. And he had he, he again worked with Tony Fauci, Mark Dybul, um, uh HIV scientists in Uganda, Peter Mujeni, the Congressional Black Caucus, folks like Barbara Lee, um, Eddie Bernice Johnson, uh, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson. There was a coalition of of HIV advocates and uh, and scientists and researchers that had worked with the Bush administration to convince the Bush administration to launch this big global HIV program, and 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 President Bush understood uh, the. Uh, the need to to do something at, at a massive scale for for him it was it was around there was a moral conscious reason for wanting to 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 uh, fight HIV globally you know they were concerned about the epidemic of HIV orphans all across the continent mm-hmm. they also thought as a national security issue I think rightly so Condoleezza Rice sec- former Secretary Condoleezza Rice has spoken about this uh, Colin Powell you know they saw the HIV uh, could could tear apart the entire African continent, and this is things that we were talking about in in in, in the early two thousands, and they were very true. And uh, again, very similar to how we were we were thinking about COVID and how COVID could have actually done, unless uh, if it wasn't for some of the treatment and uh, vaccine uh, opportunities. And so President Bush rightly uh, announced the 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 PEPFAR program. It's it's called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Uh, $15 billion, Greg. Let me say that again, $15 billion. That's unheard of now. And he announced that at the State of the Union, uh, he had immediate congressional support from both Republicans and Democrats. And um, and then that got passed in Congress later, like six months later of that 2003 year. Uh, this was right around the time that I had my first trip to South Africa. Mm. Uh, we're talking about this program that was coming from the United States. And um, and that changed the course, I'd say, not only of HIV but of public health. A lot of the 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 a lot of the learnings from uh, responding to COVID came from 20 years of PEPFAR's work in Africa and Asia. You know, and and uh, you talk about the H and and so that program. Let me just clarify: has been around for the last 20 years. PEPFAR just announced its 20th anniversary last last year um and that's when i was working uh mm. at the state department as well they announced tremendous tremendous um progress greg i mean um some of the you know they have put over 20 million people on hiv medication globally wow. you know um yeah they have kept over 5 billion uh 5 million excuse me babies they have prevented 5 million babies from being born hiv positive um, that's that means five five million babies were born without the virus, even though their mother was HIV infected, uh, because of the support that the U.S. taxpayers through PEPFAR have supported. That's amazing, right? Incredible. And so that program continues, has been reauthorized a couple times since, uh, and it's it's gotten a lot more support than than the domestic 
uh, Ryan Wyatt program that we have in our country. Um, in 2008, that PEPFAR program was reauthorized by Congress at a whopping $48 billion. Wow. $48 billion over five years. Now, of course, every penny of that was needed, and, and, and advocates like myself at the time were arguing that we needed even more than $48 billion. Um, but but that is, that is, it's been a remarkable success that uh, President Obama, uh, uh, President Biden, um, all secretaries of state, have everyone globally has, has acknowledged it's changed the course of, of humanity in, in, in giving and uh, impacting the economic livelihoods of, of African communities and really, you know, jumpstarting a whole new healthy uh, young generation of people who were living and working because they had access to treatment uh, and care through PEPFAR program. Wow. That's impressive. Really impressive. Well, talk a little bit more about your work with the Biden administration. So I, uh, I was involved early on with the Biden administration, actually, uh, politically. I, I, you know, like many had been very disillusioned by the Trump administration's lack of, gosh, so many things, but in particular science and disregard for humanity and, and my human rights and, and, you know, and, and so much more that I, um, you know, wanted to be involved in, in helping to elect, um, wanted to be very involved, you know, electorally and politically, um, when that election was, was, was starting up. I aligned myself quickly with, with president Biden. I, there was something about his, I, I known President Biden and worked with him before, but I knew that of the candidates that were available to Democrats at the time, and we had we had a bunch. Uh, he was the only one that could really he had that he had the historical perspective uh, and uh, the long years of history uh, in, 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 to be able to get us out of the kind of ditch America was in at the time, you know, and, and I saw that and believed in that from day one and associated myself with this campaign very early on. So I had the awesome opportunity to, to, to volunteer with him, door, do door knocking in Iowa. I was, uh, I was at the Iowa caucus uh, for him. And there's a really great story for me and the Iowa caucuses, because that's where I met my, that's where my, my now husband mm. and I started dating. We had met before then, but it was the Iowa caucus that really helped us, um, Get to know each other and we dated then and we, we went on our first date then so there's a love story there that i've told president biden about which he loved of course um and so but i and so i i saw the potential in what president biden can do and that um got me very involved early on with his campaign and then i had um the opportunity to join the what they call the transition team when a when a president is elected and there's a team of folks who are working to implement his vision on day one, you've got about two months between you know the November election and when he ends, when when the president is sworn, is sworn in. So that was part of you know I think they had a couple hundred people um, who were hired to I was a volunteer actually, um, but the people who were hired to prepare for the administration and and that work, Greg was was awesome because I was in charge of COVID vaccine rollout mm. and developing um, plans to get the United States back into the World Health Organization. I had developed plans to get the United States to uh, to join COVAX, the Global Vaccine Equity Initiative, that all these things that the US was not part of. And, uh, and a lot of the administration's day one actions 
related to COVID vaccines, COVID testing, um, and, and global actions related to COVID are all things that my, my colleagues and I worked on during that transition team that President Biden signed into law the day that he was um, uh, sworn in. So that was some really cool work that we did uh, in terms of restoring public health, restoring U.S. image globally, re restoring U.S.'s scientific leadership. President Biden said that he was putting Anthony Fauci in charge of the COVID response. You know, uh, for for those of us who believe in science, that's not, you know that's that's a given. But at, at the time, it had to be said. You know. Right. Um, those sort of things uh, were were things that I got involved in. We also um, got we had written a lot of policy uh, materials around HIV response, around LGBTQ uh, awareness globally. There was a draft of the gender equity strategy that was announced by the president six months into his administration. I got involved in the Armenian genocide recognition uh, that the president announced in April of his first year. So a lot of cool policy work that we did. Uh, uh, through that work. And then I ultimately landed a job at the State Department where I had the opportunity to work for that PEPFAR program that we've been talking about. Wow. That sounds like quite an education you got. I did. It was really great. I mean, but the president and his team at the time he was president-elect uh, and Secretary Blinken, they created the uh, opportunity and the, the policy framework to be able to dream big. You know, we were talking about things like equity, back then you know so like and so when you when you talk about health equity gender equity that gives you a broad lens in which to design policies and programs to be able to really reach and um uh, a marginalized population so so that that framework that belief and support that they provided allowed allowed um agencies and people and programs to, to dream big in terms of what might be possible well that's certainly at risk this year you know as we come into this election year uh, which I, I just can't keep, I cannot emphasize to listeners the importance of paying attention and preparing yourself to vote and making the best choices that are available to us. But from your perspective, you obviously are very close to this and you've, you've lived through a period of time with Donald Trump. Uh, can you imagine another four years of him? And what do you see are the risks for all of this amazing HIV work? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's this is one of those things where everybody needs to wake up and smell the coffee, right? And 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 figure out what are you're going to do uh, in your community or or nationally or you know outside of your work environment to to help um, to to help uh, you know support the next uh, uh, president, President Biden, and 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 get involved electorally to register people to vote to get people out to to vote. I decided for myself that was running for Congress. And I decided to run for Congress earlier this past year in June. And I quit my job at the State Department, came back to my hometown in Los Angeles. And I've been doing that community mobilizing and and uh, 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 get out to vote work myself since, since this past summer, last summer, I should say. And so uh, I do think that uh, that threat is extremely real, Greg. And But I, I also think that the... Threats to HIV are, are already happening, by the way. We don't even have to wait for President, uh, for, uh, uh, God forbid, President Trump again, because Republicans in the House and in the Senate are dead set on cutting HIV funding and um, not reauthorizing the PEPFAR program that we were just talking about. 
PEPFAR's reauthorization expired this past September, and it hasn't been authorized for the first time since mm. since 120 years. So think of the, I told you 20 million people are on HIV medication in Africa and Asia, and there are countries and programs that are waiting for Republicans to get their act together and, and reauthorize this program, and there's no uh, realistic possibility right now that that's going to happen. There's so much dysfunction and chaos because of the extremism that the GOP has caused. Their greatest accomplishment last Congress was to elect a speaker and then fire him and then elect a new crazy speaker. Uh, Mike Johnson is the most anti-LGBTQ, anti-women speaker we've ever had. Uh, and Republicans in, in, in the House of Representatives have specifically targeted HIV programs, by the way, uh, for cuts because they think that the HIV programs in the United States are, are, not, uh, are not effective. And so anybody who listens and who cares about HIV, who's living with HIV, has a friend with HIV, who cares about science and public health, they need to really understand the, what's at risk uh, now in Congress, uh, but also if there's a future Republican administration under President uh, Trump, because uh, there's there the threats are real, and I think the, the cuts are real, too. And one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress, Greg, is, you know, I recall what Nancy Pelosi said. When she got elected, or do you, have you heard this story? I don't think so. When 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 Nancy Pelosi was first elected to Congress, she went to Washington D.C. You know, you get to say one quick thing, I guess. When this is according, I'm retelling Nancy Pelosi's story. She goes to Congress, she raises her right hand, you know, she gets sworn in, and then she says, "Mr. Speaker, I'm here to fight AIDS." And she said this, you know, and uh, I forget what year she got elected. It was '82 or '83, something like that, and. And I'm running for Congress now, 40 years later, because, Mr. Speaker, I'm here to finish the job to fight AIDS that Nancy Pelosi and others have started. And that's um, that's what I've said. I've said that to the Speaker. I hope I say that to the Speaker when I'm when I'm sworn in next year. But that's what we need, Greg. We we're losing our HIV champions. Um, you know, uh, in Congress, we've lost a lot of folks who who were around when PEPFAR started, who were around when Ryan Wright started. People like. Henry Waxman are, are no longer there and haven't been there for a while. And as we talked about earlier, the younger generation and, and the younger members of Congress are not coming to con they're not coming to Congress to fight AIDS, you know, there are so many other challenges. Um, speaker Pelosi is no longer the speaker. Congresswoman Barbara Lee uh, is running for Senate. And so she's she's not she's not gonna come back as a as a congresswoman next year. I hope she comes back as a senator, uh, but she is the one who's carried all of this HIV work for for us. And and th thinking about not having her in the Congress is is a very scary proposition. So we're losing the number of people who were very active in the 80s and 90s and to, and early 2000s to fight HIV legislatively, politically in Congress and and. And this is one of the main reasons why I'm running to be able to go back and put HIV uh, on on the agenda, pass out HIV ribbons in the in the hall of you know in the halls of Congress on World AIDS Day. Those are the kinds of things that we were doing in the 80s and 90s, and we need to do all over again because, as we've discussed, uh, we're far from over uh, in terms of uh, where we need to be. Yeah, that's pretty scary. And it's very scary. I think yeah. what people need to realize is we're not just talking about cuts to funding that goes outside of the U.S. There's a philosophy here around, as you mentioned, investing in HIV prevention and treatment that the GOP doesn't feel is working. At least that's the excuse that they're using to sort of attack it. I think it has a lot more to do with my guess. 
religious values and a, and a continuing disdain and for LGBT folks, homophobia and transphobia. That's really what's behind it. But we're also at risk of jeopardizing a vaccine and a cure that's been on the horizon, right? We're, it, it almost feels like it's within grasp. What's, what's mm-hmm. your thoughts about that? Is it, in, is it within grasp? Is it within our reach to be able to end this? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. These attacks and um, the the cuts that they're proposing to the HIV program and the broader attacks to to trans kids and to people uh, in the LGBTQ community, like my like myself and others, um, are are coming at the worst possible time. Yeah, because I, I am optimistic that um, a vaccine and cure um, will come. You know, I'm I I don't. I can't, you know, looking at HIV science now, there's nothing that's telling us that there's something that's going to come in 2024, 2025. But but I'm enthusiastic about the billions of dollars that we invested in studying the COVID virus and in developing uh, vaccines uh, for COVID. And, um, and I think that science, which, by the way, was first enriched by HIV science and uh, and now I think that science for COVID vaccine development is going to recontribute to enhancing HIV and other uh, uh, viruses, uh, like, for example, mRNA uh, modalities. I'm optimistic there might be one for HIV. And so I, I do, I'm optimistic more than ever that something is possible. We've seen a few examples of functional cures, but a lot of those cures that have been, uh, that we, that the scientific community have, have, has proven as presented has been really unrealistic uh, to be able to implement at scale. Uh, and, and and so we still wait for that magic bullet, so to speak. But Greg, we're, I'm more concerned about not that science. I'm more concerned that a Ryan White program in Congress hasn't been re- reauthorized in 10 years. Okay. Ryan White technically can't purchase uh, prevention modalities or a vaccine or a cure. The bill has to be reauthorized and modernized because it was a bill for people living with HIV. And so, uh, and there's very specific provisions in the bill about how the funding can be spent, right? And so we need a Congress that can get its act together, that can pass a regular budget, first of all, but then second of all, champion an HIV legislation for Ryan White so that we can appropriate those dollars for Ryan White to, to go towards a cure and a vaccine. We need community organizations and public health departments across the country to to have robust plans out ready when the vaccine is available that that have been informed by the mistakes and the mis- missteps that we all experienced through COVID, through the COVID vaccine rollout. So all that has to happen now. And uh, CEOs and, and other leaders of HIV foundations and organizations, I hope that's what people are thinking about now because... Uh, it's on the horizon, and I think we we need to be prepared for it. Um, I think that's those are what's at, that, that, those are the issues that are at stake um, domestically, even as we're working to to fight HIV. But Greg, we haven't talked about one thing that also really excites me. We don't have to wait for a cure or or, or a vaccine. U equals U. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you've talked about U equals U on your show. Yes. But for the for people who who need a refresher or who don't know, there's some really exciting science that shows that people who who are living with HIV and who have undetectable viral loads, and that means that you're on your medication, you're taking your medication regularly, the World Health Organization has said you have zero risk of transmitting HIV to your sexual partner. Let's say that again. You have 
you're undetectable, you have zero risk of transmitting HIV to your sexual partner. That's that's in some ways better than a vaccine. And and so uh, that has that's I think we talked about ARVs, we talked about PrEP. Now I think U equals U is the 2000s version of uh, is the is the 2020 version of like what is what is big and different because that means that 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 has really shaken up what, how we think about uh, sex education. It's shaken up how people living with HIV think about their own self stigma or community stigma. And in you know for for many serodisorbent couples like me and my husband. It, it's a reality, right? Uh, my my husband is 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 uh, has an undetectable viral load, and we ha- and and I remain healthy because because of this this exact science, right? And and uh, and by healthy, I mean HIV uh, free. But it's also changed the way we talk about HIV. You know, we it, people who cares if you're HIV positive or negative. You know, it, it's almost it's created this like status neutral approach to how we think about people and relationships. Right. And, so U equals U now if it's if it's globally implemented implemented by our public health departments and some cities are doing a better job than others uh, that really has uh, an opportunity to educate those 1,500 people who are still being infected by HIV to say look you know this is the time to get educated and 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 and, and come get treatment uh, because your health is is related to our community health you know and and so that really is an opportunity. Uh, right now that we should be focused on even before the cure vaccine comes. Well, I think it's really interesting. I've, I've proposed this question to other guests. It seems to me, based on the percentage of people who are living with HIV but don't know it, right? They're afraid mm-hmm. of getting tested or don't get tested or don't have access to testing or are just unaware that they should get tested. It's almost safer to date someone who is HIV positive and has zero detectable viral load than someone who doesn't know their status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's not that I have been on these dating apps, but from what I hear from my friends, uh, you know, people put that in their profile, right? You know, people say that they're undetectable on their profile, and that's awesome. Yeah. That that is beautiful. And and if you don't know what that means, maybe you're asking someone, and and that and that's just such a sex positive way of talking about. Um, health and wellness and, and, and sexual health in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing important work, very important work, both with HIV and, and then running for an important congressional seat. Uh, it's important. It's critical that we get every vacant seat filled by the right person. For our listeners who would like to go and learn more about you and follow your campaign, where can they go? Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks for putting a spotlight on this. My campaign is is fueled by and supported mostly by people living with HIV, people who are working on HIV and in global health. I am so proud to have that as my base across the country um, of people who want to see an HIV advocate, an HIV champion in Congress, you know, to finish the job. Uh, folks can go on my website. It's girar4ca.com. My first name, J-I-R-A-I-R, 4CA, F-O-R-C-A.com. We're on social media, of course, on all the platforms. Get involved with the campaign, whether you're in LA, where, I am, where I'm at, or across the country. Donate, volunteer. Uh, there, We have an opportunity. This, this district, Greg, includes West Hollywood, you know, and a big queer community. Uh, uh, it's one of the queerest districts in the country, actually. And big HIV enterprises like AIDS Healthcare Foundation, APLA, 
Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. So there's a big constituency of people who care about and who work mm -hmm. on HIV, who are living with HIV. And so this, I, I like to say, this is an HIV seat. We need we need we need a, an HIV leader to occupy the seat, and that's why I'm running. Excellent. Well, if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can follow Gerard's amazing work. Thank you so much for spending time with us tonight, giving us an update on HIV and giving us some hope for some leadership at the federal level. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for your, your work to always put a spotlight on the important topics on science and health and, and all the good work you're doing as well. It's an honor to be with you. And that brings us to the end of our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 FM KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand eight times again And I'll rise up, I'll like the waves I'll rise up, in spite of the ache I'll rise up, and I'll Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roner Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next. <laughs>